Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. This week, we return with Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a staple in the archives of 20th century preachers. He was a pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1927 until his death in 1960. While trying to preach in Ireland at the outbreak of World War II, Dr. Barnhouse recounts the many obstacles he faces. Today's message is, Things Present Cannot Separate Us from the Love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. phrase, I am persuaded that neither things present nor things to come shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We live in a world of change, but also in a world which has been the same ever since sin entered into it. The French have a proverb which expresses this seeming contradiction. They say, plus ça va, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they remain the same. A man who had not heard the morning news came upon a friend who was reading the morning paper. Is there anything new, he asked? And to this the friend replied, Oh no, nothing new, just the same old things happening to different people. Oh, it's a great moment in life when we come to the inner meaning of such a condition. It relieves us at once from the tyranny of the extra edition, the every hour on the hour broadcast of the news. Things present cannot separate us from the love of God. And anything that really affects our lives, we'll come to know it soon enough. If a copy of the average newspaper were saved for a year and substituted for this morning's paper, there would be many readers who would not know the difference until they had read many columns of fine print. This team would have beaten that team in baseball. This criminal out on parole would have been apprehended and returned to prison because of the commission of new crime. This movie star would be separating from that movie star in order that each might remarry with still other movie stars. This sensational murder trial would be drawing crowds of listeners. That diplomat would announce from the current conference that with the signing of the latest agreement, long strides had been made towards peace. <laughs> Things present. They cannot separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have lived through some of the most poignant events through which our generation has passed, and I know that they have strengthened my faith and deepened my knowledge of the love of God. I recall one of the most difficult experiences of my life. There are stories told by surgeons of their most difficult operation and by lawyers concerning their hardest case. I'll tell you of the most trying sermon that I ever had to preach. In the summer of 1939, I had been preaching in Edinburgh in Scotland. My family were staying at a little summer resort on the coast of Normandy in France. I hoped to join them for a few days between the close of my meetings in Edinburgh and a campaign that was to occupy me for a full month in Belfast, Ireland. I took the night train out of Edinburgh on Sunday evening and was in London early in the morning. I crossed the city and went out to the old airport at Croydon to fly across the channel to the little town of Deauville. When I presented myself to have my passport examined, a young official, whom I afterwards realized was from Scotland Yard, questioned me about my plans. I told him that I was flying over this Monday morning, but expected to fly back on Friday in order to be in Belfast on Saturday. 
He looked at me most earnestly and said, if you want to be in Belfast on Saturday, I strongly urge you not to go to France today. I knew that Hitler had just signed his perfidious treaty with Russia and that he was threatening to march into Danzig. But the ride to the airport through the suburbs of London on a beautiful August day lent a deceptive atmosphere to the political world and war seemed very remote. It is true that I had noticed at least a dozen large signs on private homes as I came through the suburbs, and the signs read, come in at any time and pray for peace. Nevertheless, I had not seen my family for weeks, and the young man who stamped my passport let me go, but with a shake of the head and a solemn word, don't forget that I warned you. The channel was blue as we flew across, and we landed at the little airport behind the resort town. My family was waiting there for me, and uh, filled with the joy of seeing them, I did not take realistic notice of the fact that there were French soldiers everywhere and that the airport buildings had been turned into a barracks. I stopped at the desk to check my return accommodations for the Friday, and the clerk hesitatingly told me that he was not sure that there would be a return flight on Friday. There was a possibility that all flights would be canceled. As a matter of fact, the last flight that took passengers out of that airport went the next day, and there were no more for several years. But I didn't know this at the moment when the joy of reunion was uppermost in my mind. We drove on down the coast for a few miles to a little village which was calm and peaceful. There were hundreds of families there, and the beach, a Normandy beach, was filled with children playing. War seemed very remote, and I didn't take the trouble to read the newspapers very closely. There were negotiations, 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 but there had been negotiations for years. And though the Rhineland, and then Prague, and then Vienna had successively fallen to Hitler, there was no reason to believe that there would be much difference over Danzig. The children played on the beach, and the mothers watched them with pride. From time to time, an airplane appeared in the distance and the whole beach seemed to come to stillness, just as though a motion picture had suddenly turned into a stereopticon slide. And then, as someone said, it's one of ours, the motion began again and life returned to normal. They were pleasant days, that Monday afternoon, the Tuesday and the Wednesday. The pictures I took up and down that beach were later taken by the United States Navy Intelligence as a small bit in their preparation for the landing on the Normandy beaches. On that beach, many Americans would die. But now the news was more ominous. Hitler's forces were massed along the borders of Poland. Danzig was practically surrounded. Experts said that the city would fall in 15 minutes if the Germans really wanted to move in. What touched me much more closely was the final word on early Thursday morning that there would be no airplane flight back to England. If I wanted to go to England, I'd have to go all the way to Paris and then back across to London. The decision had to be made in haste. I took the next train to Paris. While I was on this train, the French ordered mobilization. No one who has not gone through mobilization in France can understand the hours which follow the giving of the order. Every man in France has been through military service and every man knows exactly what he must do when the mobilization is ordered. Every mayor in every little village and hamlet has the large posters all prepared so that the writing in of the date and the posting of the announcement is all that is necessary following the giving of the order from Paris. 
All France knows of mobilization within a few moments after the giving of the order. Furthermore, there is the sounding of the tocsin. Only once in my busy life have I ever heard the sounding of the tocsin, and I pray God that I may never hear it again. In the Middle Ages, when few people knew how to read, the whole of France had developed a code for the bells of the churches to sound forth the various peals which would give people the news of what was happening. The peasant in the field could tell by the ringing of the bells whether a child was being baptized, a young couple married, or from what is known as the passing bell, whether a funeral was being held. There are few spots in France where the bells of the churches cannot be heard. Bells have played a great part in history. They gave the signal for the Sicilian Vespers in which the French were massacred in 1282. They rang to announce the massacre of the Protestants on St. Bartholomew's Eve in 1571. And the special peal that is the alarm for war, the tocsin, was sounding from every steeple in France as my train moved on across the pleasant fields. At each stop there were tragic scenes. Men by the hundreds were leaving their weeping wives and children and boarding the train that was to take them to their mobilization center and then on against the Germans. Many of them would never come back again and the villages and towns through which we were passing were Normandy villages and towns which would crumple under our own American bombs as we came with the terrible liberation a few years later. But at this moment, all we could see was the tragedy of the separation and all we could feel in the tense people around us was their gripping fear of the present and the future. I could speak to but two or three of the calm that could be ours in the midst of pending disaster, but what was one so little among the need of many? Hours late we arrived in Paris and I walked through the familiar streets that were so oddly different in the first make-believe playing at a blackout. Would bombs fall on the city? I had no time to stay or to look further. Music blared from the bars and the restaurants. Paris was trying so hard to be gay, but the outward mirth was a thin, a very thin mask at best, and underneath was the agony of things present. I thought of the fact that very few people in the great crowds knew that things present could not separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the saddest words in the Bible description of the unsaved is that God is not in all their thoughts. An hour later, I was on the express that was moving towards the coast again. I afterwards learned that it was the last train that carried civilians. There was no delay, and we swung alongside the dock where the channel steamer lay in the darkness. There was confusion as men sought to work in the blackness. But finally, we were on board, and the ship moved out into the channel. Later I learned again that this was the last ship which took civilians across the channel for many years to come. I made my way to the bridge of the ship and introduced myself to the captain. He invited me into his cabin and we listened to the radio reports. The Germans had moved into dancing. The reports of the bombings were tragic. Chamberlain had called a meeting of the cabinet. An ultimatum had been issued to Germany. If they were not out of dancing by 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, war would be declared. The captain, with British calmness, said, This time there'll be no turning back. This is it. I went to my cabin, and after a few fitful hours, I came out to go ashore at the rising of the sun. It was Friday, September the 1st, 
1939. It was a beautiful day, and the train carried us swiftly across Kent, under the little bit of sky that was later to be the scene of the Battle of Britain, where a handful of the bravest would bring many a Nazi invader down in a flaming spiral of death. But now, we coasted along through the hop fields, and soon came into Victoria Station. As every traveler knows, London is ringed by great railroad stations, and it was necessary to travel by taxi across the city. As we drew near the great stations that serve the North and Scotland, there were thousands and thousands of children lined up for the evacuation. I had an hour before my train left, and I walked out along the streets, where the children were waiting for the trains that would take them away from their homes, and from the city which was so soon to feel such destruction. I shall never forget one little child. All of the children had received identification tags, and each had been given some chocolate. This particular child had started to eat his chocolate, and it was smeared all over the lower part of his little face. He had obviously lost all control of his bodily functions, and he was wailing with cries of misery, mixed with terror. And I knew that there was nothing that could be done about it, and that his case was but one little isolated island of misery in the midst of a great nation of misery. I spoke to the conductor of my train and told him of the urgency of my trip. My ticket called for a trip through Wales and across to Dublin and up to Belfast. An hour or so out of London, we were sidetracked to let a troop train go around us. Then we were stopped again while three trains of children passed us. We went on our slow way. Finally, the conductor came to me with the news that the ferry would not run to Ireland and that the station master in London, appraised of my journey, advised that I should be routed through Scotland. All day long, we went our slow way to the north and reached Carlisle about midnight. The station hotel was filled with milling crowds of soldiers and I slept the rest of the night in a chair in the corner of the bar. Next day, there was a slow ride across the south of Scotland and hours of waiting at Stranraer. Not far from the town where I took a brief walk, it was possible to see the coast of Ireland across the grey-blue sea. I knew that there was to be a formal dinner there that night and that several hundreds of tickets had been sold for it and that the Lord Mayor of the city was to greet me with a welcoming speech and I knew that I would not be there and I hoped that I would be there in time for the sermon the next morning. After dark, and the dark is late in Scotland on September the 2nd, our little ship took off across the Irish Sea, the land all black. One lighthouse that ran without a resident keeper was still blinking its automatic light in the distance, and a man said with a curse that the Navy should shoot the thing out. The Germans could use it for a landmark if they cared to come over to bomb. And then we reached the little port of Larne, transferred to the train, and went on our black way through the night, reaching Belfast about three o'clock in the morning. My committee was waiting for me. They had rightly judged that I would make every effort to arrive on time. We paused briefly to pray with uncovered heads before we got in the car and crept down the lightless streets. There was an automobile wrapped around a pole. The driver had not learned the perils of the blackout. We reached my hotel and groped our way to our rooms. There were heavy curtains so I could have a dim light. My friends said good night and said they would come for me at 10.30 to take me to church. One of them said, I hope you'll have a good sermon. It may well be the last that some of the men will ever hear. And then he left me. I stood in my room with my baggage around me. 
Some pieces had been piled on the desk, and I took a piece of paper and laid it down on the mantelpiece and stood up while I wrote the outline of the sermon that I expected to preach in a few hours. I knew that it would be one of the most difficult tasks I had ever faced, and yet I knew that things present could not separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord, nor could these things present separate my hearers from that love. It had to be a sermon that did not smell of the study in any way. It was to be a sermon that was hammered out on the hard anvil of life. I stood there and prayed, and suddenly I thought of the perfect text for that hour. And with great rapidity, I wrote down the text and three or four thoughts that would be my subheads, and then I went to sleep. In the morning, the friends came and drove me to St. Enoch's, perhaps the largest church in Ireland. The minister greeted me in his study. He was quite beside himself. It was a few moments before 11 o'clock. Mr. Chamberlain, the prime minister, had announced that he would speak on the radio at that hour. Everyone sensed that he would declare war on Germany. Oh, thank God I do not have to preach, the minister said over and over again. He came up to me and shook hands again as though I had just arrived and thanked me for being there. Oh, the church will be full of lads who will never come back, he said. I pray that God will give you something for them. And once more he shook hands with me and thanked me for being there. As we were about to go into the church, the thought occurred to me that everyone would be home listening to the radio and that there would not be many people present. And then I stepped into the church and saw that there was not a vacant seat in the whole house. The service began. We sang our hymns. An elder slipped a note to the pastor who handed it to me. I glanced at it and read, No reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. And then I was introduced to preach. I told them that I had outlined my sermon in the half-light at four o'clock that morning, but I had a text that was the most wonderful in the Bible for such a day. My text was first spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was a command. And it was a command when I spoke it that day in Ireland, and it is a command as I speak it to you today, and it will remain a command as long as this age lasts. For that command is this, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you be not troubled. And then I recounted to them the things I have just told you of these days that preceded the war. But at each succeeding horror, I stopped and repeated my text. Do not be troubled. The toxin shall sound and mobilization shall take place. Do not be troubled. Millions of homes shall be broken apart. Do not be troubled. Thousands of children will be wrenched from their mothers and the little child whom I had seen wailing was but the concentration of the wail that was going up from this whole groaning world. But Christ said, do not be troubled. The tension was mounting in the church. When monstrous grief had been piled on agonizing horror, I stopped and said, these words are either the words of a madman or the words of God. I shook my fist toward heaven and I said, God, Unless Jesus Christ is God, then these words are the most horrible that could be spoken to men who have hearts which can weep and bowels which can be gripped by human compassion and sympathy. Men are dying. Do not be troubled. Children are crying in their naked loneliness with no beloved face in sight. Do not be troubled. Oh God, how can Jesus Christ say such a thing? And then came the answer, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. 
and Jesus Christ is the God of detailed circumstance. Nothing has ever happened which has not flowed in the channel which God has dug for it. There have never been events which have flamed up in spite of God to leave him astonished and bewildered and confused. He is our God. The sin of man has reduced the world to a cockpit of passion and fury. Like wild beasts, men will tear at each other's throats. But in the midst of history of which Jesus Christ is the Lord, each individual who has believed in the Savior as the Son of God and the Lord of life will know the power of his resurrection and will learn that events cannot separate us from the love of God. The fury of judgment must ever follow the fury of sin. But the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, and the Lord shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. Christ is the God of detailed circumstances. There is nothing that is not included in the plan which he has purposed on behalf of those on whom he has set his love. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In the years that have passed since that morning, I have frequently met people that were there and have told me how God lifted their hearts, how God sent them forth with the quiet assurance that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, how wonderful it is to know that we are held in the hand of God. For thus it is that believers in Christ can walk into the things that are present without being afraid. Young men in the armed services can go to far places knowing that there is a shield about them, the shield of the Father's will. This is why we can hear of wars and rumors of wars and yet remain untroubled. Things present cannot separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are unseparatable. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are men and women who are persuaded there is nothing that can change that persuasion, for it is the persuasion of God. We have given our full confidence to him. We have believed his word about our sin, and we have believed his word about his son, our Savior. He has convinced us with a divine convincing. We need never be troubled again. Things present shall not be able to separate us from his love which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There will be storms, but the believer will pass through these storms like the silent center in the heart of a hurricane. This is our privilege in Christ. Things present cannot separate us from God's love. And our Father, we pray thee for every troubled heart this day, every believer who may be surrounded by things that seem too great, Lord, wilt thou give to thy people this day the joyous calm of certainty, the divine persuasion that nothing can separate us from thy love. Hear us, O God. And if there be any that know not this love, give them restlessness till they come to rest in Christ. And through him to thee be all the glory, now 
until Jesus come again and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers. 